Section 21 of Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Red Rubber, the story of the rubber slave trade on the Congo, by Edmund Dean Morell. Section 21. The Duty. What Great Britain Can Do. Part 2. What of our rights under Article 2 of the Convention? Commercial rights entailing the freedom of purchase and of sale, of buying and of leasing land, of every other thing needful to the prosecution of legitimate trade? I refer to the general commercial position later on, contenting myself at this stage with the remark that as commerce of any kind, by any one, was swept from the vast Upper Congo in 1891, so have our rights under that article been cynically infringed. What of the rights of British missions and missionaries under Article 2? How are they interpreted by King Leopold? I do not know the exact figures, but I think I shall be well within the mark in stating that the British missionary societies have spent some £300,000 on the Congo. From the purely secular aspect, this is a national interest which cannot be lightly ignored by a British government. The money thus expended has come out of the pockets of the British philanthropic public. It is entitled to consideration. Of late, King Leopold has quietly opposed the development and extension of all religious propaganda on the Congo, Roman Catholic and Protestant. It is true that he recently conferred special facilities upon an English Roman Catholic organisation, granting its sites in close proximity with a Protestant mission. But this is an exception, and was due to the expectation and the hope of affording an opportunity for sectarian controversy and to reap all the capital from that which was possible. To draw, as he has tried to do for long enough, the red herring of religious squabbles across the bloody trail of native persecution. The spokesmen of the Belgian Roman Catholic Mission in Belgium, however, are no less emphatic in their protests at the obstacles thrown in the way of Christian propaganda on the Congo than are the Protestant missionaries. Towards the latter, King Leopold's policy is one of open hostility. Round some of the mission stations he is making a waste, he refuses to sell new sites for extension of work. We emphatically protest against the repeated refusal to sell sites for mission stations to our societies, says a protest and appeal signed by 52 evangelical missionaries of all nationalities, representing the totality of their brethren, perhaps some 150 in all, assembled in conference at Stanley Pool on January the 16th of this year. He offers impossible sites for leases on impossible terms. In 1898, the Congo Balolo mission desired to open up on the Juapa River. Permission was granted. Difficulties follow. The game of Jekyll and Hyde is time-honoured on the Congo. Finally, the party of missionaries were turned off by force. They were not permitted a glimpse into the interior of the Domaine de la Courant through which the Juapath flows. They were kept off the region where bloom the lilies or eternal peace by a hedge of rifles and cap guns. 
When it is remembered, wrote Dr Guinness to Lord Lansdowne on the 29th of November 1905, in a letter recounting the grievances of his mission at the hands of the Regenerator of Africa, that the Juapa River, with its 32 tributaries, is comparable in importance to the Danube in Europe. It will be understood how serious, from a missionary standpoint, was the expulsion of the agents of the Congo-Balolo mission from the site of Bonyeka, which they had selected. During the correspondence, a map was kindly sent us with one site indicated where we were graciously permitted to settle, but this site corresponded accurately with an uninhabitable, low-lying, fever-stricken swamp. Three years ago, Morrison, the sturdy and eloquent missionary from Virginia, a man whom to know is to trust, after vainly appealing to King Leopold to redress the wrongs inflicted upon the wretched natives round Luebo, came home and denounced the crimes there perpetrated to the world. Then he went to Brussels and bearded King Leopold's principal secretary in his den, I beg pardon, his thickly carpeted, heavy-curtained office, where reigns an air of mystery, where converse is the art of fence, where the visitor's chair is so placed that the light may fall upon its occupant's features, while the inscrutable gentleman with the pince-nez, tall, slim, très correct, and excessively subtle, reclines in discreet shadow. There, amongst other complaints, he protested against the withholding of mission sites. Here was an opportunity. A few days later, all the subsidised organs rang with the news that Morrison had been pursuing material interests, and failing to secure them, had launched his accusations. He was an infamous calumniator like the rest. When HBM consul Mr. Roger Casement visited in the summer of 1903, the station of the Congo-Balolo mission at Bongandanga in the ABIR territory, he found that the missionaries were being made unwilling and helpless accomplices in the illegal system since condemned by the Commission of Inquiry, and persisted in, of forced levies of foodstuffs upon the natives by the officials of that concern. All free dealing in articles of food between missionaries and natives had been prohibited. You see, the missionaries were then writing home, denouncing the atrocities perpetrated in their neighbourhood, and this was the first form which their punishment took. Not even an egg could the missionaries buy from the natives. All their supplies they were compelled to purchase through the ABIR, which procured them by the usual method sacred to Congo custom. Consul Casement protested energetically to the Governor-General. I have a right to request, and one that I would urge with most respectful insistence, that my fellow countrymen residing in any part of the Congo state should not be forced, in order to have food for themselves and households, to share in measures which are repugnant to the most vulgar sentiments of civilised society. Voluble assurances were given, and broken, and for 18 months afterwards, until the repeated representations of the Congo Reform Association to the Foreign Office put a stop to the practice, the British missionaries were persecuted in all sorts of ways. Their food supplies were stopped altogether, the natives were forbidden to sell them anything on pain of instant punishment. Natives were shot and imprisoned for contravening these instructions. Their fowls were stolen. They were forbidden to cut wood without paying exorbitant fees. 
they were insulted and even threatened by the ABIR officials, one of whom became so violent that the British consul, a thousand miles away, insisted upon an armed guard being placed on their premises under an Italian officer. As recently as the beginning of this year, a party of British missionaries itinerating in the upper Lamarca region received written communications couched in the most insolent terms, and in very bad French, from the local representative of the ABIR, ordering them to clear out. Here are passages from these letters. The company, e.g. the ABIR, being domaine privé, you have no right to sojourn therein. Your voyage to the upper river cannot take place overland without the authorization of the director of the ABIR company at Basankusu. The latest form of persecution to which British missionaries are subject consists in that of prosecution for criminal libel for reporting evidence tendered before the Commission of Inquiry in open court, which evidence, as I have explained further back, has been suppressed because King Leopold is frightened that capital might be made out of it by the author of this volume. In reality, because he knows that that evidence, if produced, would stagger European public opinion. Mr. Stannard is the first victim of this ingenuity, and at the very time these farcical legal proceedings were in process, his nominal prosecutor, the chief of police of the district, was making use of the press bureau in Brussels to propagate throughout the world charges of incitement to rebellion, incendiarism and murder against the defendant, and another missionary, Mr. Whiteside. Moreover, a new law has been passed whereby any missionary who reports to a government official or to a judicial official outrages committed or allowed to be committed by a white man is liable to be tried for defamation and sentenced to five years' imprisonment. As I write these lines, letters from the Congo inform me that native evangelists attached to British mission stations have been turned off the Bosombo River and forbidden to enter the region, where probably some devilry more pronounced than usual is taking place. This sort of thing cannot be allowed to go on. The British government is morally bound to insist that from this day forward the British missionary societies shall, in accordance with the terms of the Convention, extend their civilising labours where they like, a, even in that heart of that inalienable Holy of Holies, the Domaine de la Couronne, erect new stations at suitable sites, not pestiferous swamps, have perfect freedom of dealing with the natives, and generally benefit by the rights secured to the subjects of this country. British consular officers should be increased, and the slightest infraction of British rights should be at once reported when the remedy is in our hands. I prefer, whenever possible, to quote the utterances of British statesmen when referring to what Britain can do under certain contingencies, because a man who has led a campaign of denunciation and exposure is always liable to be called extreme. On this occasion I venture to quote Lord Fitzmaurice, who, speaking in the House of Commons in 1904, said, He would venture to remind the Congo Free State how easy it would be for Europe, or indeed for any state that chose, 
to practically put an end to its existence by sending a few ships to the mouth of the Congo. The Congo Free State lay absolutely at the mercy of this country, or any country which chose to say that it would occupy the capital of Boma in the name of civilization. It would not be necessary to occupy Boma. A single man of war stationed at the mouth of the Lower Congo with orders to prohibit the entry or departure of steamers or craft of any kind would be quite sufficient to bring King Leopold to his knees, if not to his senses. The blood-stained rubber in the outgoing vessels would be late for the Antwerp market and the shares of the trusts would collapse and in six weeks King Leopold's officials at Boma would be howling for the supplies contained in the steamer's due. Imagine the superior Congo official at the capital deprived of his tinned delicacies, even though of Chicago manufacture, sweet champagne and vermouth. It is too horrible to contemplate. Lord Fitzmaurice is perfectly accurate. King Leopold's African enterprise lies at the mercy of this country. He has broken every promise he made us under the declarations and the convention, instruments which concern us and us alone. To sum up, we recognised a benevolent and civilising enterprise, not a piratical undertaking, and it is open to us to refuse steamers flying a piratical flag access to our waters and to give the king's mischief-making consuls in this country their congé. We were given pledges that our subjects on the Congo would be assured of justice and protection. They receive neither, and we are entitled to establish consular jurisdiction. We were given pledges that our merchants should be unhampered in the conduct of their business. The only elements in the country in which they could conduct commercial transactions have been appropriated by the king. Our missionaries were guaranteed unfettered liberty in the pursuit of their noble aims. They are interfered with, and now they are being persecuted for telling the truth. On both these grounds we are justified in taking drastic and immediate measures for the preservation of our incontestable rights. Heaven knows we have waited long and patiently, and put up with flouts and jeers, which we should have brooked from no first or even third-rate power. And what is our right has become our manifest duty in the general cause of civilization and humanity. Having passed in review the various forms which British action can now take under our treaty rights with King Leopold, let us examine successively the position Britain enjoys as a co-signatory with other powers in the Act of the West African Conference of 1885. Her situation in the world today, the instrument which that Act provides in the event of the infringement of its clauses, and the considerations of weight which urge her to assume an energetic initiative. I may be permitted, perhaps, at the outset, to state with deliberate conviction, which others can take at their own evaluation, but which has not been arrived at without consulting continental acquaintances, whom I believe to be well informed, that a decisive step by this country under her own treaty rights, on one or several of the lines indicated above, would in itself precipitate that renewed international conference 
which Lord Lansdowne formally invited in 1903. I have been repeatedly assured by men whose statements cannot be dismissed that the ill success of the British note of 1903 was due, apart from the circumstance that our prestige was not, perhaps, particularly high just then, to the belief, rightly or wrongly, entertained by continental statesmen that the British government was not in earnest in the matter, that it had obeyed a sudden and forcible mandate from an uninstructed House of Commons, and that its demonstration was of the platonic order. Students of the Congo question will remember that the attitude of the British government, subsequent to the issue of the note, was not precisely calculated to remove that impression. They will also recollect that the issue of the note and the later communications of Consul Casement's report to the co-signatory powers led to a pilgrimage on the part of King Leopold to the European courts and to the Elysee, to a systematic and extraordinarily active campaign in three languages on the part of the Press Bureau, representing the agitation in England as confined to a small group of bitter and interested persons, the House of Commons as victimised by false information, and Consul Casement as an unreliable half-fanatic, half-adventurer, and to the dispatch of sundry, impartial investigators to the Congo who traversed the Consul's charges, described the missionaries as perjured liars, the state of affairs on Congo as one of Elysian bliss, and the system erected by King Leopold, a species of African St. Simonism, a Ainsi de Suite. That these concerted efforts, coupled with the impression mentioned, did at any rate affect continental opinion is unquestionable. The position which Britain holds as one of the signatories of the Act of the West African Conference is one of quite exceptional moral strength as compared with that of most of the other signatories, both as regards the historical part she played before and during the elaboration of the clauses of the Act, and in respect to her standing as a tropical African power and a great commercial power with thousands of miles of frontier running parallel to the Congo Free State in various directions. To a greater extent than is the case with any one of the other signatory powers, is it possible to affirm that but for British acquiescence there would have been no Congo Free State. The position of France, Germany and Portugal alone of the other signatory powers approaches in importance that of Great Britain. France, because of her long contiguous frontier, the fact that she holds a considerable proportion of the converted Congo stock, loan of 1888, and by the right of preference or preemption which King Leopold, without the consent or recognition then or since of the other powers, made over to her in the event of Belgium definitely declining to annex and the Congo Free State coming, as it were, on the international market. Portugal, because of her contiguous frontier, which does not greatly affect the question, her frontiers being unoccupied, as is the case with France to a large extent. Germany, because of contiguous frontiers, the fact that she is a great commercial nation, and the circumstance that it was in reply to a German invitation and in the German capital that the West African Conference was held. Few will dispute 
that the prestige of Great Britain in the councils of the world has seldom stood higher than it does at this moment. The ally of the risen sun in the Far East, on terms of close political entente with France, of sound friendship with Italy, of historic friendship with Portugal, of friendship cemented by royal family ties with Spain, Denmark and Norway, all three powers, the latter with Sweden, of course, signatories to the act, of blood relationship with the United States, which, although they did not ratify the act, sent representatives to it who played an active part in the discussion of the protocols, did ratify the Brussels Act, and were the first to recognise the flag of the International Association. These connections give an aggregate of moral force to Britain which, if she but chooses to put her shoulder to the wheel and use the resources of her diplomacy to the utmost, ought to prove irresistible. The only cloud on the horizon is, or is supposed to be, Germany. But not only has the first diplomatist in Europe taken in hand the improvement of our relations with that power, but there are indications in several quarters of a rapprochement which, minus a few are fire-eaters, is desired by both peoples. Apart from this, the protests of the German Chambers of Commerce, of the German Colonial Society, with its 30,000 membership, and of other public bodies in Germany against King Leopold's African pretensions are on record, and if those protests have not been renewed of late, it is not because the situation which caused them to be uttered has become modified, but because the general political relationship between Germany and Great Britain has led to the suppression of all manifestations calculated to support British policy in any part of the habitable globe. But the policy of Germany in tropical Africa is chiefly commercial. She seeks, as we do, outlets for her commerce, and in that respect her true interests and ours in those regions are identical now as they were in 1885. It is only reasonable to assume, therefore, that by earnest representations to the co-signatory powers, in hands so sound as those which hold the thread of our foreign affairs today, accompanied by a friendly notification of our intention to enforce strictly and without further delay our own treaty rights, the British government can bring about a conference of the powers, if it will. It is perhaps less a matter of what we can do than it is whether we should do it. The cons appear to be, first, that England may herself have been guilty of infringing the letter of the Act of the West African Conference. Secondly, that as a nation, our hands in Africa are not clean. Thirdly, that King Leopold, if we drive him too hard, may succeed in embroiling us with some other power. With the last con is mixed up a great deal of excessively vague talk about pan-Germanism, secret treaties, Belgian independence, fortification of Antwerp, and what not. It seems to me that the third and last objection is unworthy of consideration by a great nation, in the face of a clear duty which brooks no denial and discussion of its various phases would lead us into an essay on contemporary European politics, far removed from the objects of the present volume. It is sufficient to remark that King Leopold plays a splendid game of bluff, 
and that if he can bluff our statesmen into believing that he holds all sorts of terrible cards up his sleeve, which he can remove therefrom and brandish over their heads, like a sword of Damocles, paralysing their action at pleasure, he will certainly do so. But it is ranking our statesmen rather low, and the idea will be greeted with the most pronounced scepticism and incredulity by Englishmen of all parties. That King Leopold is a dangerous man and a malignant enemy, we know, that he is utterly unscrupulous and immoral alike in his public as in his private life, we know also. But in Europe, he is the constitutional monarch of a small, neutral state, not an autocrat ruling by force and violence. As such, his capacity for intrigue and evil has definite limitations, and in the interests of his dynasty, he must needs keep them within bounds. So far as the first objection is concerned, two very pertinent facts can be pointed out. The first is that the few concessions given in British East Africa, which, it is hardly necessary to say, are totally at variance with King Leopold's system, were given while Lord Lansdowne was in the government, and that Lord Lansdowne is the author of the note to the signatory powers suggesting a further conference. This does not look as though we had done anything very dreadful which need hamper our action on the Congo. The second fact is that Lord Percy, speaking in the House two years ago, declared that Great Britain was perfectly willing to submit the terms of those concessions to an international tribunal with a view to ascertaining if they could in any way be regarded as infringing the Act of 1885. The second objection has always struck me as lamentably weak. In the first place, the main purpose of the West African Conference of 1885 was to deal with the territories of the Congo Basin, and a renewed conference arising out of the violation of the clauses of the Act would obviously be confined to the same programme. Aside from this, the argument would, as Mr Bennett stated with such admirable force in the House last July, if pressed to its conclusion, stultify all human effort towards improvement. To contend, moreover, that any political errors or individual abuses which have occurred in tropical African dependencies are in any sense of the word comparable with the system of pillage and destruction deliberately wrought on the Congo by King Leopold and his associates in the interest of private profit, is to exhibit a lack of proportion and absence of mental balance beyond the boundaries of reasonable discussion. The hands of no colonialising power are clean in the sense that no colonialising power has been free from political error or political injustice, and that no colonialising power has been free from the presence of incompetent and vicious servants among its personnel in colonies or dependencies. Shameful things have been done in British, French and German Africa, especially in time of war, and when those shameful things have come to light, public opinion has denounced them and insisted upon redress. But here is no question of the occasional backslidings which have marked, and ever will mark, especially when passions are aroused locally, the relationship of the forward and backward races of mankind. 
Here is a policy, cynically and ruthlessly elaborated, and pursued by one man for his own personal ends, and for the enrichment of a handful of individuals at the cost of untold human suffering. Here is one man living in luxury in Europe, claiming before the world his right to regard the greater portion of Central Africa as his private property, the people inhabiting it as his serfs, the riches it contains as his own, and his power to utilise the labour of the people of the land for the acquisition of those riches, absolute and unquestioned. Here is raid, massacre, mutilation, torture, incendiarism, and destruction visited upon a people, not in a state of war at all, but merely as incidental features in the raising of taxation. Since Pharaoh enslaved the Israelitish nation to minister to his ambitions, there has been no parallel to this. To acquiesce in such a monstrous emendation from a disordered brain, because the millennium has not yet dawned, would be tantamount to committing moral suicide. No, that second objection has only to be dissected in the light of common sense to be rejected. It is worthily inspired, but, if adopted, would lead Christianity to the abyss of self-destruction. End of section 21